This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 15 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks to Dustin Yellen about his busy life making art while also running a nonprofit cultural center. I have no life, no wife, all strife, can't think, overwhelmed, don't know how to do it. I love it. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? In 2012, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook was catastrophically flooded. Dustin Yellen had just finished renovating an arts and cultural center he founded in Red Hook called Pioneer Works. He watched from a rooftop across the street as Pioneer Works filled with water up to the neck. Pioneer Works survived and is still going strong, and so is Dustin Yellen and his own artwork, sculptural paintings with often dystopian themes. His work has been featured in Lincoln Center for the New York City Ballet Art Series, and he's been working with Google on virtual reality technology. Dustin Yellen, welcome to Design Matters. 
Oh, thank you, thank you for having me. Dustin, I understand you breakdanced in Jay-Z's Picasso Baby video, music video. Tell us all about that. Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't even know where I would begin. They just called me up and said, come on over. Sort of an unexpected uh, sojourn into Chelsea. But I mean, as a young man, I, I, I did breakdance on the, on the Venice boardwalk on some cardboard for, you know, I could make around $13 in a day. And slowly I moved up to linoleum. Now, how did Jay-Z find you, and why and how did you learn how to break dance? I, I don't know how they found me. You just got a me. call one day, like, yo, dude, Jay-Z yo, wants you to be in his video. They said, just show up, yeah. In the 80s, I guess I was just into that, you know, that music, and so I was into breakdancing, like doing the coffee grinder, and, you know, it's like sort of a modern gymnastics. When you were five years old, I understand your mother left your father and you moved from California to Colorado. And you've said that you were lucky to be raised by women in the mountains. Tell us more about that. I mean, I'm just grateful that, yeah, that my mom took me out of Los Angeles where I was born and into the mountains because I, I, I was raised in nature. Yeah, I grew up in, in the woods. So, Tell us what it means by being raised by women. Well, I mean, I think I, I think the term was lesbian wolves. So, uh, <laughs> so you were well parented. If, if I were to quote, quote, <laughs> I was well parented by many women. Yeah, because my mother, you know, she would say she's try anything. So there was a lot of folks coming and going, but but mostly women. And I was in the woods, so I feel very lucky to have grown up in a, not in a city, but you know, in the middle of nature and building things out of sticks and rocks and talking to animals and whatnot. Your mother was a real estate developer and has described you as the weirdest kid and a willful loner. Um, what was at the heart of all that willful lonerness? You know, I don't know. I mean, I just didn't really ne necessarily connect with the normal things. And so in Colorado, you know, all the kids were were playing hockey. I'd be figure skating by myself or, you know, they'd be drinking beer up on the mountain and I'd be sort of fumbling through the woods on my own. So... So I think I, I was always uh, felt a little bit displaced, potentially. Would you consider yourself a loner now? Hmm. I, I would consider myself in perpetual conflict now because I, I sort of am wearing two hats all the time. So, so yes, I would love to go in and spend time in the middle of nature on my own. And yet, simultaneously, I, I'm an organizer and I'm, I'm bringing people together it's and so it's those two hats yeah those two hats require almost completely different kinds of lifestyles as a as an artist you have to spend quite a lot of time alone but as an organizer you have to spend quite a lot of time organizing quite a lot of people yeah so it's challenging and 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 i try to mitigate it by getting out of new york city you know i just drove through hokkaido in japan and last year i went through papua new guinea and then the year before, into the depths of Africa. Uh, so, I, so I try to get out, and, and I try to balance it with time out or hide at my house. But, but it, it is truly uh, challenging because I, I'm always kind of in between those two things. Now, I know your father was an avid collector, and you followed suit. From what I understand, when you were a kid, you could often be found digging through other people's garbage and bringing home all sorts of things to arrange in your bedroom. What kinds of things were you amassing? I still do that. You do? Yeah, so you I, go through other people's garbage? Do you ever get arrested? Uh, not for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later uh, for the other things. <laughs> um, 
I'm still doing it, and I and I collect all kinds of strange things. I mean, I have a, a very strange barometer I found in the garbage when they were renovating a. This was in New York, renovating a school. Books, love. I still. Um, I mean, this is nothing. Nothing has changed. So I'm still bringing home books and furniture, and uh, not as much because when I was younger, I mean, I would fill up spaces. You know, I was painting on doors. I was painting on mattresses that I w- would find. Just about anything, really. What did you want to be when you grew up back then? What were you imagining for your future life? When you say back then, how far back? Like When you were collecting rocks, oh. when you were working in the Crystal Kingdom. and you, I understand you took rocks as pay back then. That's true. I still do it. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with rocks. Um, I, have, I still have rocks everywhere. I, I even bought a 40-pound rock back on my last trip in my suitcase. I could hardly put it above a thing in the plane. What made you decide you wanted that particular rock? Oh, it's just such a beautiful—you have to come see it. It's, okay. it's at the house. It's a beautiful <laughs> rock. I think rocks tell stories. I think objects tell stories. I think they almost have histories. And oh, absolutely. So I think that's my attraction, and I think a rock can be as interesting as a Caravaggio. Now, I understand that you had, as a kid growing up, quite a predilection for making money. I understand that you hired people to buy up limited edition swatch watches that were one per customer, and then you went off and sold them. Not only that, but you made enough money at that time to buy an Audi. So how old were you when you did this, and what was at the heart of this drive and ambition? (laughs) I mean, I think probably just freedom. Yeah, <laughs> freedom was the drive. I was, I believe, around sixteen, and that's uh, before I dropped out of high school. And there was a kid in school named Seth Grossman who I started, uh, like, you know, it was just a way to to pay to make some money. Yeah, and uh, buying a car was kind of like the first symbol of freedom. But you needed to sell a lot of watches to buy a car. I mean, swatches are expensive. We, but did, we did really good. Yeah. Like thousands and thousands, right? Yeah. 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 We, we, it was good for a little while. Yeah. Now, given your acquisition, your own acquisition of a car, I'm wondering if you can tell us about what happened when at 11 years old, your mom caught you smoking pot and what she then promised you. I have back then and still do now a very open relationship with my mother. And so I said, Mom, I smoked pot. Oh, you just told her you didn't get caught. No, you no, just no. Offered I just it. was like, yeah. And she's like, don't do that again. And then a week later, she said, look, I'll make you a bet. If you don't smoke cigarettes, don't do drugs, don't do anything. Uh, drink alcohol, nothing until you're 18 years old. I'll buy you a nice car. And of course, uh, I'm a kid and I'm, I'm an honest kid. I say, yeah, sure. And then I went through my younger, those years, when all the other kids were doing that stuff, not doing any of it. And as you pointed out, when I was 16, I bought my own car. So by the time I turned 18, I, was, I said, look, I, uh, I won the bet, but I bought my own car with my own money. But so now you have to, uh, you have to give me money instead of a car because I've spent all these years, you know. And then, uh, and, and she did. She kept her word. I kept mine. And then I spent that money on drugs, sex, and rock and roll and really just kind of like had my own Woodstock in my mind. Yeah, I read that you hitchhiked through New Zealand, Australia, and Thailand, read Freud, learned about Warhol, wrote bad poetry, and dropped acid in Bondi Beach while watching Woodstock. Wow, you read that. That's amazing. <laughs> the things I've said. Uh, yes, all of that is accurate. Um, what made you decide to drop out of high school? And why did your mom allow that? If she didn't want you to be smoking pot and cigarettes, why did she... I think at that point I was, you know... Too willful to stop? Precisely. And yeah, 
And, and I, I just wasn't connecting with what I was learning in school. So I felt like, yeah, I just wasn't connecting to the, to the people or to the teachers. From what I understand, you never went back to school. Correct. But you did get an honorary degree from the Savannah College of Art and Design. I did. I got a doctorate. Do you make people call you doctor? I call everybody doctor, so it's reciprocated. <laughs> were your parents terrified at the choices you were making back then? I mean, given your mom's urging of you and, and bribe, really, to keep you from doing drugs and smoking pot and so I forth. I imagine absolutely. How were they feeling about your choices? Not so hot. <laughs> Probably terrified. When you finally returned to Colorado after the um, expedition and dro- dropping acid in Bondi Beach while watching Woodstock, um, there was other good things. I went to oh, tell us. Tell oh well, us I more. wouldn't even know where. I mean, I went all over. I hitchhiked across New Zealand. I went skydiving. I went caving. I went uh, into the visit Aboriginal tribes in the middle of Australia. I went uh, all kinds of things. It was what like a you, weird. What were you adventure. searching for? I mean, the meaning of life. What are we always searching for? Same thing I'm searching for now. Have you what? Have you learned anything about it? Uh, just the, the there's probably no answers. Just more damn, questions. damn. Yeah. I'm always hoping I'm going to get that sort of holy grail from one of my guests. I Please tell me why so. we're here, how we got here, and what's the point. <laughs> um, so when you returned to Colorado, I understand you became an apprentice to a physicist who performed experiments on you using crystals, hallucinogens, and other drugs. Um, What kinds of lessons and realizations did you have from those experiences, and what kind of experiments were there? Well, um, you're I, blushing, so this is going to be juicy. <laughs> are you familiar with John Lilly or uh, no? I'm a, not. A scientist. I'm not. Um, did you see the movie Altered States? Yes. So that was based on a character, a, a scientist called John Lilly, and uh, I met this interesting physicist who knew Buckminster Fuller and was very much a scholar of Tesla and zero point energy and things like this. And he was at the time extraordinarily influential on me for many different reasons because I didn't have anyone exposing me to things. So really, it seems like you were quite aware of possibilities. I I was aware of possibilities, but no one was saying this is Nikola Tesla. This is what he did. This is Buckminster Fuller. This is what he did. This is Pablo Neruda. So it was an intellectual stimulation. Absolutely. And And this is real gay. And this is, you know, certain kinds of music and literature and things like this. Yes. And yes, I was, I was doing these strange, uh, experiments with consciousness and, uh, you know, I would leave my body for about an hour at a time. and Where would you go? Uh, you know, it's almost like you become one uh, one cell through in your bloodstream, like moving through a liquid eternity, and then you'd become one star in space, you know, going into the cosmos, and then you'd be in a cathedral and there'd be no ceilings. You'd sort of become consciousness or like aware without the body of all of what consciousness is. What kind of hallucinogens were you doing? I was doing uh, muscular injections of ketamine. <laughs> I haven't done that in a very, very long time, but I, there's a lot of research I've been reading about it now for, you know, PTSD and oh, depression. Yeah. And absolutely. It's very End of life care. Yeah, all kinds of interesting things now. So potentially I was ahead of my time. Um, now, is it true your mom eventually banned you from seeing the physicist? That's pretty accurate. So you're still pretty young at this point, under 20? Oh, yeah, 18. So I think her exact words to him were, don't ever go near my son again. I don't remember, uh, but they were certainly stern. Well, that's what she said. No, I'm teasing. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't ask her. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think she was. You know, again, she, was, as a mother, would be quite concerned. For me, I was very lucky because I was exposed to these things, and it also gave me these bigger visions of. You know, I was making art and writing, but now I was obsessed with 
with sort of grander idealistic notions of how do you bring the world together to solve for climate, for poverty, for agriculture, for, for larger issues, I think. Do you feel that that experience sort of rebuilt you psychologically? Yeah. I don't know if I would use the words rebuild, but certainly rewired and uh, exposed me to a certain kind of possibility and really set me on a path where I came, you know, I, I, I was obsessed with art and I was reading about Warhol and I couldn't imagine how, I hadn't studied art history yet, so I couldn't imagine how this guy for these soup cans could become sort of the most celebrated artist in 50 years. I just didn't get it and I wasn't making a judgment. It just seemed so easy. And he had such a voice, uh, so much influence and voice from his art that that combined with what I was reading about Bucky Fuller and, and folks like that really set me on a trajectory to go to New York. I said, well, God, if, the, if Andy Warhol could do that, like I can go to New York and become like Andy Warhol, anybody can do that. And then you have a voice. And then it really was about what you did with the voice. And for me, that voice was about uh, bringing people together across disciplines to work together at, at some of the larger issues, particularly around, I think, energy and climate. You've said, I didn't decide I wanted to be an artist, like someone decides they want to be an astronaut. It evolved as a form of therapy, as your way of dealing with the world and what was in it. Mm. And, and I think that's so interesting to sort of discover that that's what you want to be as opposed to declare that that's what you want to be. Yeah, I didn't feel like I really had any other choice, right? Mm -hmm. I, was, I was all over the place as a kid, you know, so interested in space and I was interested in film and I was, you know, I was interested in things, but I didn't know about them. It was, they were just very abstract ideas. But as I learned more and got exposed to more things, it became more clear. It was also the ultimate form of freedom. One of your first tasks as a New Yorker was along with a friend to rent a raw loft in an old horse stable at 10th Avenue and 18th Street. And you turned it into a kind of 24-hour event space where artists and celebrities and scientists and local auto mechanics uh, would drop in whenever they wanted to. How did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to do that? How did you get that kind of immediate clientele? You know, right off the boat when I moved to New York, I was going out a lot as a young person is and I and like a magnet or something or, or some sense of gravity. I kept meeting people right away. So I met artists who are still in my life now, 20, almost 25 years later, uh, and all these incredible people that are, a lot of them still in my life. That was what New York was a symbol for and, and, and frankly still is, is, is it's people. Again, I would live in the middle of nowhere happily, but if you're trying to organize and, and bring people together, New York City is a great intellectual fabric, if you will, to, to weave of souls. And, and for me, I think that place was just my version of the factory or something. It was just, it was a place where musicians and poets and writers and filmmakers and artists were, were just convening and very informally playing music together and painting together and writing together and sharing ideas together. You were also making art at the time. Um, tell us about the body of work you made for Cipriani in Soho. Uh, uh, I mean, just strange, very sort of, again, I was not educated in art history yet. I mean, if I were to reflect, they were very much abex type paintings very gestural 
weird paintings, but this was this was I, I was in my nascent sort of very experimental. But that's a pretty big gig stages. to get at such a nascent age or nascent yeah, well, I mean, phase I, of your career. I didn't know who they Giuseppe Cipriani was back then, or Cipri- I didn't know anything, and uh, he was just one of many people I met who really believed in me. And people said to him, you're crazy. You could hang anything on your walls because of his clientele. And he said, if Dustin gets on the table and pisses on the wall, I'm going to hang it. Wow, he really liked you. Which wasn't far off from what I made. (laughs) Um, but, But he really believed and was incredibly supportive. And a lot of people were, you know, I was hustling. I would do anything. I would sell a painting for $200. I would give away art if it meant that the art got out of my studio and someone could see it. You know, it was it was like whatever it takes. And I still say that to artists. I, uh, better to get your work out by giving it away if it's going to go have a life. Because if 10 people see it and only one of them connects to it, that's one more that's going to, you know, it's almost like a disease. It has to spread. And the only way, you know, really, if you get too proud or too precious and it just stays in your room, it, it's going to get stuck. To this day, you're still entirely self-taught. I mean, what does that mean? I I I, I learned from some. I mean, I think you taught you know, yourself. That's, I guess, what it yeah, means. You learned by yeah, curiosity. I'm, I'm self-taught, and and I I try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me, and I'm always trying to learn from everybody around me. And I think it's a great way to learn. Yeah, I mean, especially in New York City, it's just it's endless. Well, going back to that particular time in your life, while you were the officiator of your space, um, you're also partying quite heavily. And in my research, I, f- I found that you once boarded the Forbes family yacht and said you owned it. You sustained an accidental stab wound, quite a deep stab wound from Bijou Phillips that left you in the hospital and also made tabloid headlines. Um, and then you broke into the Belvedere Castle in Central Park looking for Rapunzel and subsequently were locked up in a, in a psych ward. I was actually looking for Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh, okay. Sorry about that one. Um, so, so how did you rebound from this life? Did you have to consciously redirect? Uh, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if I was parting as hard as potentially it's been written about. Um, and the episode in Central Park, there's a film of it called The Crack Up. Yes, I was going to say. Did you I watch understand it? you have a video. Yes. yes oh, you did? Yeah, good, good. yeah. Videotape of the experience. That's, that's who, who was shooting it? Me. I was by so myself. Were, okay. Yeah. So you knew enough ahead of time to sort of document I this? I didn't know anything. It just kind of happened. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. And, and I thought, you know, I thought it was almost like life was playing a joke on me and that, that the whole world knew each other, like the seven daughters of Eve, that everybody was related. So, I mean, any of that is possible. True. And I so mean, I would walk by a restaurant and I would I'd just wave at everybody. I thought everyone was pretending not to cho- know each want? other. I don't know. I mean, but, but, <laughs> but, I, but I was really like, you know, uh, it was incredible. I mean, the video is cool. One can find it on, on the internet. Yeah. Um, it was an incredible experience. And I think, uh, you know, I've, I've just been very lucky where I've bounced back from all of this stuff. I've always had the same sort of North Star. What was it like in the psych ward? Do you remember? A little bit. I mean, I remember I was arrested in Central Park looking for Zelda Fitzgerald. They took my shoelaces. They put me in an ambulance to a hospital. Uh, Some friends came to get me. I was like, I won't leave. They were like, get dressed right now. I said, I don't want to go. I'm not going to leave. And they said, get dressed right now. And they couldn't get me out of the hospital. 
So you wanted to have that experience? Was, I don't know. Were you aware? I, or? I, I don't know. I, re- okay. I, I don't know. But but at the end of the they couldn't get me out. So then this ambulance, another ambulance takes me to another hospital. And that's like in the movies with the little window and the little cups mm. and the full lockdown. At some point, I said, oh, I want to go home. And they were like, you can't go home. Now you can't. And my mother and father, who had not been on an airplane together in decades, flew out to New York and got me out. And then what happened? Life resumed. Did you feel comfortable with the direction your life was taking at that point? Or did you feel like you had to tone down, reboot? You know, I don't know. I, yeah. think, I, think, I think I was okay. I know at that point your money started running out and in order to continue being able to make your art, you sort of began recycling um, or reworking some of the pieces that you had with resin. And then in 2003, as you were working on a collage, a bee flew into the resin of one of the pieces you were working on sort of in real time, um, which profoundly changed your work. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that experience, um, about what happened next after that bee flew into the resin. Yeah, a wonderful series of accidents. I was making sort of an Agnes Martin-like grid uh, of ripped up dictionary pages and uh, covered that in resin to sort of seal the paper because I was always working with lots of found paper and a bee got stuck in it. I was actually making this for my mother, this this like weird collage, and she's frantically uh, fearful of bees. So I mean, she runs out of the room. So I poured more resin on it thinking I could submerge it more, but I noticed an optical quality, almost a magnification of the text on the dictionary page, and I built these wood boxes to make these Joseph Cornell-esque 3D collages out of found objects. And then I started drawing around the objects with whiteout, the way you might draw around a dead body in the street, like just tracing them. And I realized that I could draw in space in layers, so I removed the objects and started making these weird, they almost looked biological, and then created my own taxonomy of invented specimens. And then almost felt like I was finding a language and I started to scale those up. And I actually, the art people were really connecting to it. And I was selling more and more art. And But but the materials were toxic. Resin is toxic. So I was stuck in between finding a language and not getting to have the ability to bond with my materials and get close to them. Then I switched to glass as a way just to get away from resin. So again, all of these accidents. And with the glass, I could move the panels back and forth. So I became, I, I, I retained an, abil- an ability to edit and to change my mind and to build almost like a filmmaker in frames. And the works became more like almost frozen movies where I could build a narrative and perspective and spend a long, long time adjusting and changing and, and thinking through a work. The panels that you created with glass, they had this ability to present themselves as three-dimensional sculptures, but also there were landscapes, there were ethereal humanoid figures, they were sort of little stories in a box almost. But as you moved into the work with glass, it seems like the panels disappeared. How have you been able to create your work? It, it's very, very large. Your pieces are huge. They're, they weigh a lot. How are you able to create the ability for the elements in your sculptures to sort of float through the glass? Well, 
I'm just making the collages and drawings and paintings on layers of glass. So the glue has the same refractive index. Everything is floating. Uh, I'm very much telling sort of satirical, dystopic stories, like frozen movies. The one I just finished is called The Politics of Eternity, which is the future mirroring the past. In what way? Uh, it's about 10,000 pounds, modulated sculpture, left and right. And, the, and on the left is the future, and on the right is the past. And in the future, we're building a futuristic city, a rocket, a hyperloop, and a particle accelerator. And exactly where the particle accelerator is positioned in the future is a cave of minerals in the past. And there's animal-headed creatures inhabiting that world, and they're carrying these minerals up through tunnels to build a totemic antenna to the gods, which is exactly the same scale as the rocket in the future. So there's this symmetricity coming on underneath the ocean. There's two oceans, one in the past, one in the future. Underneath the ocean in the past is a group Sisyphusian moment where they're pushing a boulder to capture a sea monster that's eating the boats. That same moment is mirrored underneath the ocean in the future by astronauts pushing a robot to capture data that's coming out of the ocean, and everything is mirrored. So where there's a tree growing in the future, there's a tree growing in the past. Where there's a field of lights in the future, there's a field of mushrooms in the past. Where there's a cluster of satellites by the moon in the future, there's a cluster of dinosaurs by the sun in the past. And then you have the past and the future falling into the present, where you have Mars, the god of war, looming over this third ocean. And underneath that third ocean is a super tanker sinking with animals coming out of it, sort of an allegory to the Ark. And that's also in relation to a, a post-petroleum, post-hydrocarbon economic system, uh, another project I'm working on. Where did these ideas come from? Well, they're everywhere. I but mean, how do they get into you? I don't know. I mean, there's, there, it's like there's so many ideas, right? It's, there's so many books to, to read and movies to watch and poems and places and things that I live in a constant state of o overwhelmingness, almost complete arrest because it's the, the infinite detail in the information is so vast that it's incomprehensible, kind of like the cosmos. Your piece, Triptych, by, which is inspired by Hieronymus Bosch and described by Vanity Fair as a super terrarium containing a blood-spewing fountain, a female serpent, and foaming geodesic domes. It weighed 24,000 pounds. It is 18 feet, and it sold for $1.7 million. How closely do you feel you've hit your sort of original goal in the art world? I don't. No? I don't think I ever will. Why? I don't know, because I like to wake up every day and say I've done nothing and this is all meaningless. I, I really believe sort of, again, in, in relativity and in, in a relative frame, I've done nothing. A lot of the things that I wanted to happen in my 20s when I was, you know, are happening now, but then you have a whole new set of what's possible. And I don't think I'll ever... Uh, I, I, I honestly just wake up every day and I've done nothing. And now I have these other crazier dreams. And I imagine when those dreams come true, then there'll be another set, another set. And so 
I like to wake up every day and just go, I've done nothing. I've accomplished nothing. I did the triptych, and then I did this thing called Ten Parts, which is the whole world melting and the whole world drowning in the ocean, falling off the edge of the world. Psychogeographies, which is well, that's still, stunning. That's still in progress. And then the politics of eternity. And um, I'm building a work right now, an augmented reality work, and I'm writing a science fiction movie right now. I mean, there's myriad projects, and then Pioneer Works, and it's, and it's uh, you know, so, so I, I don't know. I don't, I think I'm fine with not, feeling like anything will ever be finished. Does that mean you're dissatisfied? No. I'm, I feel very satisfied and lucky, actually. I'm grateful. I'm, I mean, so lucky. And every day I'm, I just say, don't die, don't die. This is so good. I'm so lucky. I mean, most people don't even have clean water. So, you know, or, you know, think about the world in the, in the 1930s, early 40s. I mean, so, so I, I, have a, I, I really frame things in a relative sort of system are you still working in two dimension? I know that you have described working in two dimension um, as your yoga, um, and uh, I'm wondering if uh, you're still doing therapy, that. Therapy, yeah. Well, I'm building a landfill of human time. Yeah. How are you doing that, and what does that mean? Uh, I'm basically taking information, whether it's in the form of paper or hard drives or cassettes or eight tracks or found paintings, and I'm stuffing them with a stick, almost archaeological into these vessels to build this labyrinth that you'll walk through. And will that be at Pioneer Works? No, I don't show anything of my own really at Pioneer Works. I would like to, but I keep it very separate. Pioneer Works is its own thing. My obsolescence is my success. Um, so let's talk about Pioneer Works. Um, you began buying property in the area of Red Hook, Brooklyn, and that culminated with your purchase of this Civil War era warehouse in 2011. Uh, you transformed what was then named the Time Moving and Storage Building, but originally called the Pioneer Ironworks into Pioneer Works. And I understand that your goal was to create, quote, a utopian art center. Um, what made you decide to do this, and what does utopian art center mean to you? Well, again, back to when I was 18 and obsessed with Bucky Fuller and all that stuff, I... Uh, I wouldn't say utopian art center. I'd say just utopia. Okay. So, uh, you know, a lot lately we've been thinking a lot, or I've been thinking a lot with my practices in my art studio. I make these very descriptive tableaus of almost satirical dystopias, the state of the world, a lot around climate, around technology, around AI themes like this. Yes. Whereas next door at PW, it almost could be considered prescriptive. Well, Can, what do you mean? In the sense of potentially the way to deal with climate or any of the major scaled issues that humanity are, is facing is by bringing people together across disciplines, across socioeconomic divides, but really using culture as a catalyst for change and as, as a new organizing principle. So if historically you had the state and religion as, as organizing principles, which did work but also divided – Potentially, culture could be another organizing principle, and I and I use the word culture. I, I, I'd put the sciences in there, so the arts and sciences. Uh, and so, Pioneer Works isn't an art center, if, if if anything, it's a center for the arts and sciences, and and it's very much around accessibility because we're losing the commons, and there's a real commodification and commercialization of knowledge and culture. So it's responding to that, and it's responding to over specialization. Uh, academia is incredible, but 
it's scaled. So there's big universities where if you're in the architecture school, you're never going to be in conversation with the music school. Or if you're in the physics department, you're never going to be talking to film schools. So everybody's in their places. And it's like in a brain if parts of the brain aren't talking to each other. So I think Pioneer Works is trying to react to that and bring people from all these different fields, all these different backgrounds together to sort of think together differently. So it's a real cross-pollination. Mm. You overhauled the the warehouse, and as I mentioned in the introduction, um, Hurricane Sandy hit. Mm. Take us back to that time and what it was like and the impact it had on you, because you've talked about it in a very as a very visceral experience. I mean, it was incredible. You know, I love the weather. So I was like, this is incredible, the water, the thing. And then the street started to come up slowly, slowly, and I, I was just... At some point, I was like, this feels like Venice. And I went to grab the canoe. And my friend said, are you crazy? You can't go out in this. I said, no, I'm going to canoe through the streets. He said, no, 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 no. And he, he stopped me. But then the water kept coming in the studio. And it went from around six inches to 12 inches. And I put on these rubber boots. And I, I, I thought to myself, this is so great that I'm here. Because I started picking things up off the floor. I had friends of mine who were using the studio. So there's other people's stuff. Everyone said, oh, I'll save. I'll put stuff up on tables. This is perfect that I'm here. The water kept coming up. And then at some point I realized I was in the water and the electricity hadn't been turned off by the main thing. So I said to my friend, grab the dogs, grab the food out of the fridge, bring it upstairs. I'm going to kill the main power of the building and come up. And at this point it was mayhem. I mean the water, it was really hard to even compute. And I got upstairs and there's a uh, sort of overlook down to this room downstairs and the water still coming up. And in that room, there's a refrigerator, a dining room table and a drum kit. And all of it had floated up like chicken soup. Like the refrigerator was the chicken and the drums were the carrots and the water's hitting the picture frames. And I'm still just in awe. I said, this is, I'm, this is amazing. I'm not thinking about destruction or damage. I'm just thinking, this is the most incredible thing. The sounds, everything are just... And I walked to the other side of the, to the place, and I opened up the window, and I looked outside, and the ocean was now in the building. Like, the building was in the ocean. The ocean was down. Right, I, I was just... At the, the building was a boat. I was in the ocean. And I peed into the ocean from the second floor window, and I was just in total amazement. And, and the night went kind of like that. And I was never really concerned except for the smell of gas. I said, oh, well, if the water catches on fire, this is a problem. But I didn't think the water would ever get past the roof of the building, which was the next place to go. And so that was how the night went, just in, in utter amazement. And the next morning, you know, it was a surge. It went out, and I walked downstairs, and I had lost everything. And it was just, it was like World War, you know, it was, it was bananas. You lost a lot of your personal art. I lost a lot of everything, yeah. How did you feel? Uh, you know, I'm pretty good with loss. Yeah, I, I don't really hold on to much. You can't take it with you. I also experienced Hurricane Sandy. I live in a brownstone, and at the time I was renting it, and I got a call that water was coming in to the basement. And it was a hurricane, and I wasn't there, but I had to get there. So I had to go out in the hurricane and get to the house to see what was going on. And the terror at watching the water, hearing the water, first of all, that sound, as you mentioned, it's, it's indescribable. It, there is no way to describe what that sounds like. And we didn't know when the water was going to stop. 
We didn't know if it was going to go up through the entire house. We started picking up furniture, bringing it to another floor. Um, you realize how little control you actually have over anything when something that big happens. And I think it's good to live through these things and experience these things because I think we are in an emergency. And I think there is consensus now potentially around the idea that climate change exists yeah, and that the, that the earth is warming. I believe there is some consensus globally around that, but I do not feel that there's this idea that it's an emergency, that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people are going to be affected very soon and that this is happening in real time and, and that there's communities and, and cities all over the world that are going to be affected very soon and not prepared and it's not in the conversation as a global emergency. It's just kind of this thing that's happening and yet we're still going through the same methodologies of extraction. We're still using fossil fuels at the same rate. We're still building the same kinds of air conditioners. We're not putting our resources into cleaner energy at the scale that we should and and the emergency really isn't I, I don't think felt or articulated uh, by our governments and and so that so that the people really feel it and and can react because I think it's gonna uh, this that wasn't an anomaly it's gonna be more no. and more and more I mean we're living in a time now where last week in New York City it was five degrees and yesterday it was 63 degrees a yeah. 60 degree span and Six days. And, and, and we think about migration right now mm -hmm. as an issue because of, of politics, but wait till you have real uh, climate m movement. This, these are some of the themes that you are tackling at Pioneer Works, whether it be through performance, through art, through talks, through exhibits. But the New York Times quoted Papo Kahlo in saying that to sustain an art space in New York, especially a nonprofit one, is sort of a miracle because the art world is a for-profit culture. They said the odds were against you at Pioneer Works. How have you managed to beat the odds? Just keep doing it. Uh, uh, I, you know, again, I don't think of us as an art space. I think of us as something else, a, a center for the arts and sciences, a cultural center. Profit, nonprofit. Uh, I don't really think in those terms. I just think in how do you get people to come together to, to, to solve at scale. Yes, it's extraordinarily challenging building a nonprofit. And I didn't know anything about it. And we had a $200,000 budget in the first year, and we're at about an $8 million in the sixth year of being a 501c3, which I didn't even know what a 501c3 is. So you constantly in a raising funds? Yeah, we have an incredible board of directors, an incredible group of advisors and supporters, and, and it's a constant battle. And even my own artwork, I believe, is an instrument in that because people will come into my studio and, and want to acquire a piece of art. And I'll ask, are you going to give this to a museum or a school for public consumption? And they'll say, no, 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 we just we're big fans. We're going to put it in our house. I'm like, you disgusting capitalist pig. <laughs> you, you want to buy a piece of art for a quarter of a million dollars and put it in your house when people don't have clean water? That's disgusting. I guess you're a go, real salesman, go, Dustin. Go get involved in the institute first and then talk to someone in, in, about buying, uh, acquiring art. So the art's almost like a, like an instrument in a, uh, you know, or, or a gateway to, to a much larger social idea. I know you originally had some fears about how to balance your art with running Pioneer Works. I guess that's really not an issue anymore. No, it's a for real an issue. That's certainly an issue. I mean, I, I, I have no life, no wife, no all strife, can't think, overwhelmed, don't know how to do it. It's 
But you seem happy as hell. I love it. (laughs) I do love it. But we are doing a search right now for an executive director. I'll stay on as sort of a creative director and founder of the project, but I won't. I do want to make all this art, and I'm working on this crazy post-petroleum project, which is another time for another time. But, yeah, it's really untenable. I mean, I have two separate staffs and and two hats. One wants to be like the freaky poet under the rock and the other one is like a university president and that's what I'm sort of navigating. And they actually work incredibly well together to build something, but they're, it's extraordinarily challenging. It seems that this is a running theme of, of your life. Which one? <laughs> Just the, yeah. the, the theme of, of really balancing two aspects of of being a maker, a creator. How do you create and make something meaningful and how do you get it out into the world in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. You have to just run into the streets. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I will go into the streets and literally, when we were in the elevator coming up here today, I said, I, I give a talk in the elevator. Have you been to Pioneer? <laughs> I mean, literally one person at a time. One comment from an article about Pioneer Works that I found particularly powerful was this. Art historians may one day look back on the whole experiment of Pioneer Works and call it the Red Hook School. And I'm wondering what you think about that. I don't know. I mean, I think certainly we looked at, or I've looked over the years now from doing this at, and looked deep into Black Mountain and deep into Bauhaus and deep into the genesis of Cooper Union and Cal Arts and Caltech and Negroponte's Media Lab and all of these different models that are different but have attributes. And, and I find it extraordinarily interesting to learn about other uh, iterative moments where many humans were organized to uh, deploy culture in different ways. Dustin, I'd like to close this show with a quote that I read of yours, as I think it could very well be a mantra for living. You state, I wake up every day with the idea that I've done nothing, that I've accomplished nothing, I've done nothing, and the page is white, and I think, what is possible? What can be invented now? I subscribe to the idea that I'm lucky to be alive, and I might die in 65 minutes, and that... In the Bayesian sense, civilization is a sculpture, and everything has been invented, and we're now in the midst of inventing whatever the future might be. I love that, Dustin. We're in the midst of inventing whatever the future might be right now. That's true. It's it's all in our hands. uh, There's no one else doing it. Dustin Yellen, thank you so much for making so many wonderful things and many thanks for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, it does. You can find out more about Dustin Yellen at dustinyellen.com and Pioneer Works at pioneerworks.org. This is the beginning of the 15th year we've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. 
And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. <laughs>